Hello, thank you for listening to this podcast. I thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to be a supporter of this podcast and uh, if this is of benefit to you, please go to patreon.com slash timothyyap. We'd love to hear from you and we'd love to have your support. It's patreon.com slash timothyyap. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thank you and God bless you. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word, we remember the words of the psalmist. As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless and he shields those who take refuge in him. So, Father, we come to you this morning to take refuge in you, knowing that your word is flawless. You have the way of protecting your people when we dwell in your word. And so, Father, that's what we want to do. We are battered by the winds and the storms of this life. And so, Father, we want to come right now in these special moments to dwell in your word. And Father, as we take refuge in you, show us what it means to be cared by you and that your word is flawless. In his name we pray. Amen. Gladys Allwood was a uh, missionary in China. At the time, China was in, at a war with Japan, and Japan was making inroads into China, taking as many cities as they could. Gladys Allwood was placed in charge of an orphanage of at least a hundred children. They knew that the Japanese were coming into their city and they had to leave before the Japanese arrived. So Gladys had uh, the responsibility of over a hundred uh, children and there were only two helpers. How was she another lady were to take care of these hundred children and to walk with them for hundreds of miles across another mountain to another city of safety? Gladys thought for a moment and thought for a long time and she knew that she couldn't walk that far lest to bring a hundred children with her together with only another helper. She was just overwhelmed. On the night before they embarked on this arduous journey, Gladys sat outside the orphanage under a tree and she was sobbing. She was too weak. She couldn't do it. She knew that the Japanese was coming and they had to run. They had to run, but she had no strength to bring and guide over a hundred children across a mountain and to walk hundreds of miles. She just didn't have the strength. So she sat under the tree and she cried and she cried. As she was crying, a little orphan girl saw her and came and sat beside Gladys. The little girl reminded Gladys of the story of David, how David defeated Goliath, a story that Gladys had told the children on numerous occasions. The little girl tucked at Gladys' sleeves and says, Don't worry, as God has helped David defeat Goliath, he will help you too. But still sobbing, Gladys looked at the little girl with tears in her eyes and she said, But I'm not David. I'm not as brave as David. I don't have a bigger faith as David. I'm not as strong as David. I can't walk like David. I don't have the capacity. 
capacity to look after a hundred over children that David had the power to rule over Israel. I'm just not David. The little girl was quiet for a moment. And finally, the little girl retorted and said, Of course you are not David. Of course you're not David. But God is still God. Of course you are not David. But God is still God. Of course we are not David. But God is still God. Because it wasn't David who defeated Goliath. In fact, David made it very clear that it was not him. It was God who defeated Goliath. And God is still God. When we come to the books of Samuel, there are many preachers who will say, Be like David! Read this story about David and be like David. Be as courageous as David. Be as strong as David. Be as powerful in faith as David. But the problem is that we aren't David. And after reading our passage for this morning, I'm not sure we want to be like David. Because even David was not always consistently strong in his faith. Even David was not a giant. And today we are going to look at one of the most embarrassing episodes in the life of David. If David were to look back at his own life, I'm sure he will. this will be one of the most top, at least top three incidents in his life that will be regarded as the most embarrassing and the ones that he wants to forget. Our passage for this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 21 verses 10 to 15. 1 Samuel chapter 21 verses 10 to 15. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there or you can turn on your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21 verses 10 to 15. This passage is situated during the time when David was running for his life. You see, King Saul saw the potential of David, that David would one day become the king of Israel, and that David was a powerful warrior. And jealousy, rage, anger, fear overwhelmed King Saul. So Saul began his um, long pursuit against David to persecute him. And David spent years in the wilderness running away from Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 to 15, David runs to a Philistine city known as Gath. What is most interesting about the city of Gath is that it was the hometown of Goliath. Maybe David was thinking the most dangerous place is the safest place because Saul, if Saul is persecuting him, Saul would never go to, to Goliath's hometown to look for him because Saul will be butchered. So perhaps Gath, would be the safest place for him. So David runs to this city and tries to find refuge in this city incognito. He didn't want people to know him. And he thinks that people will not remember him and will not know him and he can live safely and happily ever after in, in Gath. And Saul would not look for him and Saul would not hurt him. So David was looking for a happy ever after. But little did not David know what was ahead of him. When David arrived in the city of Gath, everything appears fine. But then there was something that David did not expect. 
just like uh, many of the men in the city have perhaps have teenagers who were listening to songs on the radio there was a song in the radio land of Gath that was very popular at the time when David was there no it's not a song by Justin Bieber no it's not a song by Taylor Swift it's a song by the women of Israel that was circulating in the households of many of the men in the city of Gath. Perhaps the teenagers were listening to it. It's a very popular song by the women of Israel and it goes like this. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And people were singing it. People were remembering it. People remembering how David once attacked Goliath and slayed the tens of thousands of the Philistines. Although many years have passed, people remembered the incident. Why? Because at 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 7, the song was composed by the women of Israel when they saw David. After David had killed Goliath, and after the Israelites had slaughtered the Philistines, and they were coming home, they were joyfully marching home, the women gave these men a homecoming song. And this was a song that the ladies composed, Saul had slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. There is something very powerful about songs that seems to float around, around and around for years and decades to come. I grew up in the Methodist Church, and after being years in the Methodist Church, my knowledge about the doctrines of John Wesley was very limited. I couldn't remember a lot, or couldn't even remember uh, some of the lines from his sermons. But boy, I could remember the songs that Charles Wesley wrote. After being the years in the Methodist Church, I can sing to you songs, hymns like, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Why? Because songs have the way of, of, uh, of grabbing our memory and staying there for a long time. And I'm sure many of you over Christmas are able to sing to Charles Wesley's hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Why? Music has a way of connecting and helping us remember that other forms of communication cannot. And here David wants to live in peace. He wants to live incognito. He wants nobody to recognize him and to give him any trouble. He just wants a happy ever after ending. But he was betrayed by this one song. So let's look at the text. 1 Samuel chapter 21 verses 10 to 11. The day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one who sing? Isn't, isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain the thousands and David the tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and he was very afraid of Achish, king of Gath. David was not, notice, uh, he was not identified by the king, but by the servants of the king who remembered the song. They remembered that David was the one who killed Goliath, that David was the one who caused such carnage towards, uh, to, the, to the Philistines. They remembered the song in front of the king. What was David to do? David was here standing in front of the king of the Philistines, and the the servants have identified him as their charter enemy. 
and he was nowned in the land of his enemies defenseless, and everybody knew because of the song what had happened. What was David to do? One of the most um, frightening experiences in life is not when you run out of money or when you uh, uh, run out of ideas. But one of the most frightening experiences in life is when you are cornered. When everything seems to turn against you in a sudden moment, what are you to do? According to Amazon.com, one of the Amazon.com did a survey on all the books that's being read on Kindle. And they discovered that the the passage that was highlighted twice more often than any other passage in any other books on Kindle comes from the second volume of the book called The Hunger Games. And the, the passage has been underlined the most of all the books on Kindle is this line. Because sometimes things happen to people and they are not equipped to deal with them. You see, Hunger Games is a trilogy, three books that depict how adolescents, rigorously trained by adults, face life and death situation. These teenagers packed up uh, 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 majors, uh, certificates, internships, uh, training programs so that they can be successful in every area of life. They're driven by fear, they're driven by achievement, they're driven by hope. They want to do well in every situation they can. They want to have control over the uncertain future. And many times these teenagers are reflective of us. We want to be fa we want to be trained to face every adversity. We want to be equipped uh, when money is scarce on rainy days. We want answers for our questions. We want to be knowledgeable on our, our jobs. We want uh, we want answers. We want to be on top of things. We want to be equipped. We want to be prepared. But here are times. There are times when life turns against us. And this is what's happening to David. David was suddenly caught off guard. He thought he could live heavily ever after, but he was betrayed by one silly song that only consists of six Hebrew words. And these six Hebrew words was about to damn him in front of the king. So what did David do? David did one of the most ludicrous things that you could ever think about. And perhaps one of the most shameful things that David had ever done in his life. Look with me at what David did. First Samuel chapter 21 verses 12 and 13. David took these words to heart and he was very afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Remember the very first time when Goliath first saw David? What did, they, what did Goliath say to David? Goliath scoffs at David and says, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 43. In his prejudice, Goliath underestimated that David was carrying sticks to attack him and that he was a dog. And here David literally becomes a dog. 
he was acting like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate, just like a dog would, and letting saliva run down his beard, just like a, a, a hungry little puppy. Even though the servants of Akish saw David as the king of the land, as the victor in Goliath's battle, David was here reduced to a little puppy, scared for his life. But the amazing thing is that God saved David in one of the most remarkable ways. This is a very unusual passage of how God saves His people. God saves David how? By blinding Akisht. Look with me here. It's very, it's very keen to Goliath, who underestimated David's power uh, with his, via his eyes. Akisht overconfidence makes him ignore the servant's observation. As a result, he lets this opportunity squander away. Instead of killing David, instead of getting rid of David like he should, God blinded Akish's eyes. Verse 14. Akish said to his servants, Look at this man, he's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I short of madman that you are to bring this fellow here to carry on this like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Three observations. First, the servants of Akish saw the uniqueness of David. They even called David the king of the land. But Akish was blinded by God. All Akish could see was this man and an insane man to boot. Secondly, although the servants could see the potential of David, all Akish could see was David's physical appearance. He only saw the, the saliva coming out of his, running down his beard, and he was making marks like a dog on the wall of the gates. God has somehow blinded him. And thirdly, the servants used quite personal and hortatory language to describe David. He was the king of the land. This is David, they said. But Akish only spoke of David in depreciative language. To, to, to Akish, David was just a madman, an insane man. Because Akish was blinded by God, Akish, instead of killing David, let David go. Who would have thought that, that this episode would end this way? That David would, as, would escape by trying to be, to be mad and Akish would be so blind, blinder than his servants to let David go. What does this passage have to tell us? God is a God of many means. God can use the battlefield to save his people. God can use His words to damn people. God could send angels down to slaughter His enemies. But God can also use blindness to blind Akish. God can save through brute strength, but He can save by strange means. And here it's blinding Akish. God is an artist. He's not a copycat that can steal, that steals his designs from other people. God is not into plagiarism. God is not a machine that keeps 
printing out the same pattern minute after minute. He's always fresh, he's always innovative, he's always creative, he's always has new ways to save and his own children. God is creatively stunning. His grace is surprising and his works are perfect. What does this have to say to us? There are many times I speak for myself when I look at other Christians and I say, God, why are you not saving me and giving me opportunities like that person? God, why are you not doing this? You're already doing that for the other person. Why are you not doing this for me? But God's answer to us is that He is creative. God can use all means, all kinds of ways to save His people. And He's not restricted to one. He's a creative God. In the New Testament, everyone in the Roman world expected the Messiah to come. Just like a Roman tyrant, just like a hero, perhaps like Simon Bacoba. You know, Simon Bacoba was a, a rebel who rebelled against Rome around 132 to 135 CE. He was hailed as the Messiah by the rabbis. The rabbis referred to him as the one who can call forth the stars of Jacob, one whose scepter can rise out of Israel, one who can smite the enemies of Israel. But God did not save the world through Simon Bakoba. No one expected that God would save the world through one of the most silly means. And it was through a baby. A baby who would turn into a teacher. A baby, a teacher who would never carry a scepter in his hands, was never trained in the army, never commanded and, and uh, uh, troops. And yet, he was one of the most powerful. He saved by dying. He saved by sacrificing his own life. And he won the world through his love. God works in wonderful ways. God is a creative God. And there are times we try to limit how God works by saying, give me five steps, give me seven ways that, that how, of how God works in our lives. And I tell you, it doesn't really work that way. Because if it works that way, one person could have just written a book on 12 steps on how God can be active and saved us in our lives. And that would be enough. But the problem is that God never follows formulas. God never follows steps. God is not as pragmatic as we want Him to be. Because He's far greater than human beings. Little Agnes was a girl from Romania. Her mother wanted her to be like all the other girls in Romania, to get married and have a family and become a housewife. So when Agnes turned 18, her mother started looking for a husband for her. But before a husband could be found, Agnes announced that she wanted to be a missionary. So she left the city and went to Dublin in Ireland, where she could learn English. When she was in Dublin, she visited the slums and saw poverty firsthand. So at age 36, Agnes, a diminutive spinster, heard how Jesus wants us to bring the light to the dark world. So she heard God's voice and her heart was set on it. So she gave her life to work among the poorest of the poor in India. 
The world doesn't know her as Agnes, but perhaps people know her better as Mother Teresa. Her order grew to have at least 4,500 sisters serving in 153 countries serving in the world amongst the poor, providing hospital, hospices, aid centers, orphanages and schools for the poor. Yet she lived in a single cell in her Calcutta convent. Later, when Mother Teresa won the Nobel Prize, reporters asked her how they could follow after her footsteps. She simply responded, go home and love your family. When asked to describe herself, she simply said, by blood, I'm Albanian. By citizenship, I'm Indian. By faith, a Catholic nun. By calling, I belong to the world. By heart, I belong to Jesus. And with a delegation of nuns came to Calcutta to discover the secret of her success. All Mother Teresa could say to this, these nuns are, I give them Jesus. But the, the nuns who came to interview her were not satisfied. That's not practical. We need 12 steps of how to have the success that you have. So they asked her again, what's the secret of your success? She simply replied again, I give them Jesus. Sometimes we want to control Jesus. We want 12 steps. We want 13 ways. But Jesus never works that way. He's the Lord of our lives. He's never constricted to a single plan. Even when David was at his worst, when David became like a dog, like a mad dog in front of the king of Philistia, God could still save him through one of the most ridiculous means. No, 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 we are not David. My name is not David, but God is still God. Father, we come before you this morning and once again lay ourselves at the altar of sacrifice again. Just like Paul says in Romans chapter 12, we lay ourselves as living sacrifice before your altar again. And we say, Lord, we surrender to the mighty works of Jesus once again. Lord, it's not our way of trying to control you. But Father, our way is to, our response is simply to surrender. So Father, I pray for anyone listening to this message right now. That Father, as he or she is struggling with life circumstances about how God you will save them, how you will work in their ways. Father, our response to you is simply, Father, we surrender. Give them Jesus and that's enough. So Father, save us. Show us the different ways you work. There are many times we... Do not pray prayers like this because our hearts, deep in our hearts, we do not believe that Jesus works in creative measures. That's why he, we need to have steps, we need to have this and that. Father, help us this morning to surrender again, to worship Jesus again. To place our lives as we lay on your altar again. Holy Spirit, take control.
of our lives. May our lives be a living sacrifice to you. We worship you, Jesus. We are not David. I am not David. But Yahweh is still Yahweh. Jesus is still Jesus.